Welcome to the Magnificast. This is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt. I'm a professor of uh, media studies and communication at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are media archaeology, cultural theory, Christian leftist politics, and I am completely out of LaCroix this week, and uh, it's just a real, real struggle. <laughs> Donate to Patreon. We need to replenish Matt's uh, LaCroix, LaCroix stocks. I just need to get, I need to get to the store and get some. Get some <laughs> of that good, that good, sweet LaCroix. Yeah, it's been too hot, so... I feel like it's hard to go outside and then probably also that much more necessary to get LaCroix in your situation. Completely. Yes, exactly. Uh, up here in Toronto, I, I'm not a LaCroix guy, so I'm reduced to uh, mostly just not leaving my apartment unless uh, I have to. And then um, when I do, only going to places that are air conditioned. So do they even not, have not a great situation. Do they have LaCroix in Canada? I don't know. It sounds French enough to be here, but uh, I, you know, I just don't have the eye. It doesn't call to me in the same way, so I don't pick right. it out of the store. No, I get it. Probably. It's probably there. They have ketchup chips, so, like, why not? Oh, gross. Really? Yeah. There's everything. All kinds of goofy, goofy things. It's not just poutine up here, you know. It's also ketchup chips. It's also ketchup chips. <laughs> That's the grossest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> They're I, not. Good. I think they have those in America, too, but I don't know. I'm sorry, the United States, not America. <laughs> the Americas, That's they right. get around. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, well, I don't want to derail this great conversation about ketchup <laughs> chips, uh, but here we go. I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> this is the uh, this is the Magnificast user-created episode, so thanks to all of our, our fan base that are out there uh, producing the content for us. Um, this is an episode where we're going to uh, go through some of that con- content and, uh, I don't know, see what you guys have to tell us. Um, it's the podcast commune around here right the now. The podcast commune, that's right. We're going to defend it, unlike the other commune, um, <laughs> successfully, you know. Uh, so, uh, on that note, uh, we want to remind everyone that there is a Magnificast voicemail line, and you can call it, and we can listen to your voicemails, and uh, you can hear your voice on our podcast. Um, so, the number for that is 815-408-0745. You can call us and ask us all your pressing questions concerning... Christianity, leftist politics, etc. Um, I mean, anything else really is fine too. Um, <laughs> so do that, and you can hear yourself on um, a future user created episode of the Magnificast. So the number again is eight one five four zero eight zero seven four five. Boss, good. Yeah, I don't know. They're always fun. I like when people do that. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing we should say, by the way, is the voicemail does cut you off involuntarily, like after uh, three minutes so... or so. <laughs> yeah uh and also for podcasts it is best to have maybe like half of that time anyway so uh short and sweet is best but if you just can't you can't handle it then uh the google voice woman will cut you off anyway <laughs> uh all right man so you've got some itunes reviews i've heard we've got a lot of yeah them now. we've got so many itunes reviews that uh <laughs> itunes is no longer keeping them uh in chronological order so I just started nice. like kind of rearranging them. So if we, uh, I'm gonna just do my best to figure out which ones uh, are relevant here. But if we missed yours, I don't know. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, a little bit. Okay, send us an email. Call us up and tell us. Oh yeah, call us, and t- you can read your own iTunes review. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, the first review is from username Rev Craig. That's good. That's lo- good. Revving up. Revving, revving up. I think that's what that stands for. Revving up. 
with Craig. <laughs> That's his podcast, I guess. <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Rev it up with Craig in the morning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. The title of this review is called A Lifeline, five out of five stars. Nice. All right. So Rev Craig says, I'm a pastor in an area that's pretty rural and largely conservative. The spectrum basically goes from far right to centrist liberal. It's interesting to be a part and working in such a position for a diehard on the left. And I have a chance to speak in some places that aren't speak that others aren't speaking with uh, perspectives that can be generally new. But aside from occasional calls with friends from college or in cities, Twitter, and a few other places, I can feel a bit separate from the discourse, TM. And even those connections can read as an entirely separate way of life, unconnected to the work I'm doing in a church. This podcast keeps the ideas rolling, churning, and gives me a, gives me new ways that my leftist ideals and Christian commitments can ricochet off each other in a world and context that often sees that connection as bizarre or impossible. The podcast isn't perfect, but it's indispensable. That's where you're wrong, Rev Craig. This podcast is perfect. And dispensable. <laughs> we could do without it. <laughs> you can dispense it to all your friends. <laughs> uh, that's cool, though. I mean, it's true. Uh, I'm sorry. It's true what he's saying. Not that the podcast is perfect. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to live in the middle of nowhere and be a leftist. It's so difficult being around people who yeah. are like very far, <laughs> very far off your political spectrum is super weird. <laughs> yeah i don't live in that situation anymore but i did grow up in the middle of nowhere and uh i remember in high school when i was like slowly becoming a christian anarchist i had this government class where you had to take like a political compass test and then we were going to do a mock government and it ended up being the uh the majority leader for the democratic party and it was a nightmare <laughs> that's really funny man i love the i love political compass quizzes they're not the best yeah, they're but good. uh they're very funny very They're good. especially good when it's uh, like your government teacher trying to figure out if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Oh, uh, yeah. I've got my students take them a few times, and they're always 100% further left than they think they are. That's why, <laughs> that's why I like them, though, is because I think they skew to the left, first of all, but also because yeah. they like make you think that you're further left, so it's good. That's a good sign. Yeah, it is. It's nice. That's a good metric for uh, evangelical school, actually. I appreciate that a lot. That's encouraging. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> some good stuff all right the next review is from uh james oh james the giant podcast that's a, another podcast maybe you should check it out i don't know they follow us on twitter seem pretty cool okay <laughs> the name of their review is mark's nificent which is a lot a great plan words five to five star review um wait hey wait wait one second hey hey rev craig if our podcast isn't perfect why didn't you give us a five star review oh Say, gotcha gotcha it's perfect all right, uh, James, James the Giant Podcast, here we go. Uh, I found the podcast while searching for a theology that made sense with my politics and found its perfect manifestation in this podcast. You can also message them on Twitter and they'll totally respond. That's true. Everyone should true. message we them. We don't do anything else, actually, that's, so just uh, tweet at us. basically it, yeah. <laughs> not, even, not always even for the best. Usually uh, responses are... Yeah, not great, but whatever. <laughs> um, anyways, everyone should message them all the time with everything and obligate them to help you just as I'm obligating them to read this out loud. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Uh, I guess that's what we'll have to do. Um, Quality strategy, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we have to do it. We're obligated by law. <laughs> by the social contract that none of us signed, but all of us entered into by virtue of being born wherever we were born. <laughs> In a place where you could listen to this podcast. <laughs> that's right that's uh twitter is a social contract 
And uh, in case anyone's wondering, you are uh, obligated by social contract to uh, 100% reject the 280 character limit and just uh, never do that. 140 characters forever. (laughs) That's the worst. I hate that so much. It is the dumbest thing. Just uh, have a blog. Yeah, no no kidding. Get a Tumblr. Like, that's what it's for. Well, that's not... If we, if we talk about that more, I'm just going to get more and more upset. It's going to escalate. It's going to become a podcast I'm on Twitter. I'm fuming and, uh, over here. Limits. I'm so upset, though. I get it. <sighs> okay. If that didn't make Fill me... me back up. I got I to gotta get some juice back in my Okay, in my but this is here. only going to make it worse. This review, you're not going to like this one. Mm. Okay, this is from user username Jesus underscore Freak one Okay. I used to look at that website to get music reviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the name of this review is Thanks for This Resource, but here's what's going to make you really upset. I can't, I don't even understand this. They gave us four out of five stars, not five out oh, of five stars. Oh, no. The, uh, it's it like said Jesus Freak, and I thought they would be freaky enough to, you know, <laughs> give us a five star rating, but now I understand that there's something else going on that I can't quite pick up. <laughs> Well, I don't know why they only gave us four stars, but uh, thanks for your four stars. <laughs> Jesus. No, it's okay, though, for real. It's fine. Okay. Jesus, Jesus underscore Freak One says, I grew up evangelical and was always a good Christian, went to Bible college and everything. Eventually, I fell, I fell out of it after going through some intense personal trials and a few years of trying to reconcile obvious social problems like racism and poverty uh, with a couldn't care less church tradition. I found Marx a bit later. Um, and was convinced that he was right after reading Capital. I mean, that's, yeah, okay, same. Uh, I still have <laughs> deep sentiments for Christianity and am finding my place in the Marxist and the Marxist left. Unfortunately, there are very few people who are serious about both. I'm glad to have found this podcast where topics uh, that communists are unwilling to discuss with noobs, like the reality of violent revolution, and also have a deep experience of faith. Hint, listen to episode three. What was episode three? Uh, I think that was Derek Ford's first appearance. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, it is the Derek Ford episode. That man, that's actually, that is a good episode. I agree. Some good stuff. Um, okay, <laughs> so that's the four out of five star review. Thanks for like just smashing our brand, putting us on blast. Um, but th- I mean, I don't know. The kind words are appreciated. Wish you could have given us one more star, but hey, that's fine. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> no big deal. Um, I should say, though, if you don't already know about this podcast and didn't listen to last week's or whatever, uh, you should definitely check out uh, Rev Left Radio, their podcast, because that's a pretty good introduction to a lot of cool themes on the left, and uh, we were on it one time, so some leftist podcasts are out there chatting about religion every once in a while, and uh, Brett, who's there, is super kind and pretty like engaging i guess both on the podcast and you know other parts of social media so there's there's a good community out there but that's just one i would plug mostly because they uh <laughs> brought us on the podcast so <laughs> yeah rebel radio is so cool check it out we tweeted about it a bunch last week so find the links on twitter cool um also so in addition to itunes reviews hopefully that's all of them is that all of them matt uh yeah that's good that's all all right good good uh, I can't handle another four star, so I was just, I, you know, that was, that was where the hope comes in. I know. Uh, but we do also get emails from time to time. Most of the time, uh, we just respond to them or, like, wait three weeks and then respond to them. Uh, so, sorry. Um, but we're trying to get better at it. We're working on it over here. And uh, some of them we decided we would read on the podcast. And also, uh, we'll include them in the Magnifesto, which is our tiny newsletter. So, we've got one to read. So, uh, Grant, we're just going to use first names here. Um, you know who you are, Grant. 
All right, so Grant uh, says, I really enjoyed your third episode on why Christians should join communist parties or similar groups. Uh, that's great. We also enjoyed it. I think it was the episode where you talked about the contradiction between strict Marxism and religion. I liked the discussion, but was left with more questions. That's a good thing. Uh, I wonder how faithful to Marxist tradition we can be if we presuppose some kind of faith or immaterial reality. I'm wondering if maybe you could tackle this problem from the angle of faith and give your perspective answers on why you choose to remain religious after becoming Marxists. Noam Chomsky talks about how Marxism has all the marks, ha, it's a pun because he spelled it, M-A-R-K-S, uh, of, of being a religion without actually being one. Uh, obviously, this is a podcast that's not friendly to puns, so, you know, <laughs> demerits right there. Uh, is it possible to rely on the scientific basis of Marxism and still be a full-faith religious person? This contradiction seems endless, so I don't know if I will ever be satisfied, but it tends to get to me. On another topic, bonus bonus question. I was also hoping you could talk more about the problems of violence for for Christians and maybe share some historical examples. Is this a problem for either of you personally, or how do you reconcile that with a call on your lives, or is that not necessarily something you are concerned about? Thomas Munzer had some pretty radical stuff going on, but other than him, I don't know much in the way of political revolution from within the Christian tradition. Love the podcast. Thanks for thinking and talking about these things. It helps me process the world and my place in it. Thank you, Grant, for this uh, challenging email. Um, all right. So, Dean, here's an observation. Tell me what you think about this. The la- that last four-star, four it's just that four-star comment sticking with me. It's rattling around in my brain. I can't forget it. I get it. Uh, the uh, The last line of that review was that you should listen to the third episode. The first line of this comment is that you, that they enjoyed the third episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, connecting these dots. I think this is the same person. You might be right. If it's not the same person, these two people should really get together. Ah, uh, they should. Uh, I'm going to start a bulletin board, and we're going to find out the <laughs> misconnections. Identity. The identity of the four star reviewer will be will be found. They'll uh, be brought to justice. Hold. That's right. Hold on to your seats, friends. Uh, this is a perfect podcast, and uh, we do not fail. <laughs> uh, we have a very special set of skills. <laughs> and that is reading comments on the internet. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, let's, <laughs> let's get into it. Um, the first thing here, Marx, materialism, faith. Uh, we talked a little bit about that on Red Left Radio, because Brett asked us the same thing. I guess we could just sort of repeat what we said and... I don't know, maybe we have some more thoughts. Uh, I <laughs> I just basically said, uh, Terry Eagleton says a bunch of stuff about this, and he doesn't think it's a big deal. And uh, also, um, in sort of historical revolutionary movements, uh, people didn't seem too bothered by it. Uh, we, we read some stuff with uh, Derek about Lenin, actually, so if you liked episode three with Derek, you should look at that other one. I think it's like six or seven. Anyway... We read what Lenin has to say about religion, and essentially, I mean, no surprise, he's not religious and doesn't like religion, but he comes pretty clear out saying we shouldn't really make it a focus or a big deal, and sure, they can join if they don't like capitalism, why not? We need all the help we can get, so, I don't know. It's pretty simplistic, I guess. Uh, Maybe there's some kind of deep contradiction between believing that God is real and believing that, I don't know, Marx can figure out what's going on in capitalism today, but I don't really think so. And I guess I just, it doesn't keep me up at night. Yeah, I think that's probably the best answer, honestly. Um, Metaphysics are pretty wacky to begin with. So 
Yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, the big questions in metaphysics are kind of, like, secondary to, like, praxis, which is probably the real Marxist point anyways. Um, I don't know. You can be a Christian and a materialist. I don't... Okay, here's um, maybe a hot take, and maybe I'll regret saying this later. Um, <laughs> materialism... I mean, uh, they, this, the commenter says, is it possible to rely on the scientific basis of Marxism and still be a full-faith religious person? Uh, I don't think that Marxism is actually a scientific base. <laughs> yeah, also um, true. The, Im- I agree. the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism is very cool, but it's uh mostly like a meme at this point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> does that make sense? Like, I I don't think that there's actually anything very scientific to materialism in the way that I don't know Marx or Lenin thought. Maybe uh someone else has a better opinion on this than me. Uh, but it's uh. The, the appeal that it's a scientific basis of understanding is, I think, more problematic than it is true at this point. Yeah, or at least it wouldn't be any more or less scientific than, like, other kinds of sciences that Christians, you know, participate in and figure out a way to, to deal with. Right. So if, you, if you're hung up on the science thing and you're not willing to buy that the scientific explanation isn't a great uh, way to talk about Marxism, then at the very least, I guess you could just look at it the way that Christians... Like, we changed our cosmology when we figured out stuff about physics. Why not change our economics when we figure out stuff about capitalism? Yeah, for sure. What do you think of the other question here, though? Um, uh, Why why did you choose to remain religious uh, after becoming a Marxist? That's a good question. Uh, I guess I learned about Marx in the context of a religious community, so um, I, I it just it wasn't troubling to me because I saw other religious folks or Christian folks in particular uh, who didn't seem to think that was a big deal. Um, I guess I feel like my Marxist sentiments were motivated by my Christianity and not really the other way around. Maybe today they're I hope I think they're probably a little more dialectically related than that, but at least back then it didn't bother me and nowadays like i go to a school called the institute for christian studies so um i don't know the materialism thing just never bothered me (laughs) yeah i think that's that's about right um i don't know i think i'm in the same kind of boat though that uh i am a marxist because i'm a christian and uh it seems like keeping both those things going in my life is pretty good and like easy so why not there's also a sense (laughs) in which like uh christianity is kind of like an inheritance that like i don't know someone gives it to you and uh it's up to you to figure out what you want to do with it i suppose but i don't know i'll keep it (laughs) yeah that's exactly how i feel like i got baptized as a baby so i didn't really pick it for myself i'm just like uh dealing with it (laughs) yeah uh that's probably like the the most like unevangelical feeling i have is just that like (laughs) i don't know somebody gave me this and i guess i'll do it It's good, though. I like it. It is good. Um, So the uh, grant here, the comment goes on to say, um, it goes on to ask some questions about violence. Uh, Another episode you might appreciate is one we did on the Philippines. Um, I guess we didn't get like super, super deep into it, but we did bring up the problem of violence in the context of um, the Communist Party of the Philippines. And then there's a group there called the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, the NDFP. And within that group, there's a group of uh, really interesting folks called the Christians for National Liberation. And so in that episode, we talk a little bit about that. We're not experts or anything, but it is a, a situation on the ground where Christians and communists got together and... I mean, they are still involved in a struggle with 
the Philippine government there and uh, the forces of imperialism around the world. So, you know, Thomas Munzer is a very cool guy, but uh, there's actually a lot more, I think, interesting stuff that's happened in the last century, um, even more interesting than Munzer, like more successful Christian revolutions. Um, Nicaragua is like the, the, the most obvious case in point, I feel like, because uh, the Sandinistas, like so many of them are Christians and they ended up having parts and roles to play like significant roles in the revolutionary government afterwards so yeah i don't know there's probably a laundry list of Zapati- interesting zapatistas too i mean there's there's yeah that's Christian right zapatistas worth paying attention to yeah for sure personally i guess <laughs> i don't feel like i live in a revolutionary situation at least that's how the the communist party of canada <laughs> talks about these things so i'm not like i don't own a gun and I wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. <laughs> um, you know, like, violence isn't a good thing. We've said this a few times. Like, we don't celebrate it. Um, I guess it's just, like, a good Marxist understands that violence erupts within systems that create contradictions where violence has to happen. So, yeah, I don't know. Christians in the world have related to that by participating in revolutionary situations when they seem to be on the horizon. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, Grant, the commentator here says, um, is violence a problem for either of you personally? How do you reconcile that with the call on your lives? Or is it not necessarily something you're concerned about? Uh, it is actually something I'm very concerned about, (laughs) but like, um, maybe not in like the hand wringing kind of way. I think that like violence is a bad thing. Like you just said, I'm not going to like, uh, glorify it or whatever. Um, I'm really concerned about like real uh, systemic violence, though, and uh, less uh, less worried about um, like violent protests or violent revolutions. Uh, I think those types of violence can be justified where other types can't. So, um, right, I am concerned very much about violence. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, we were talking a little bit, Matt and I, about the St. Louis Police Department and their Twitter feed uh, and yeah. how weird it was uh, when. You know, everything was sort of erupting in the last week in St. Louis. And it's so stupid because the the cops are basically just tweeting over and over again, like uh, either, hey, all the property's fine. Don't worry. We've got it under control. Aren't the police great? Or uh, all the property's getting destroyed. And that's exactly why we need more boots on the ground or whatever. Um, and I think there is a way in which people look at that situation and they think the protesters are being violent somehow by... Um, I don't know, doing whatever they're doing. Uh, usually it's whatever the cops say that they're doing. It's not even what they're doing, per se. Yeah. Um, but uh, th- I think the most important thing to look at in that situation is that, like, it is, if there's a, a, a thing to be upset about with respect to violence, it's the police who are protecting a violent system violently over and against people who are just trying to express extreme frustration with that violence and with the consequences of that violence. So, yeah, uh, y- you're good to... Uh, point that out matt as we often do that like violence is more than um bodies hitting each other yeah um it's probably i'll I'll say it right now too if you guys don't know what situation is in st louis it's a pretty interesting um for the last week though uh based on okay so there's this cop that um uh jason stockley that shot uh this guy named anthony lamar smith um in a pretty rough way like extremely brutal with um little res- reservations it seems anyways he uh like just got off the hook and like isn't being isn't being like i don't know no- nothing's happening to him he just shot somebody with impunity um so there have been protests in st louis that have been ongoing over the last week and uh really proud of all my friends that have gone uh to those because that's very good um 
But the, pro- the, the police response to those protests have been excessively brutal. Tons of, uh, like, just tons of repression at every turn. Like, um, lots of, uh, just just tons of, like, very sneaky and annoying police tactics. But like Dean said, like, the Twitter account is out of control. Just, like, um, out of control and, pr- like, pushing a very specific type of violence uh, and a specific type of narrative of violence. Um, and it's... It's even like it's just funny at some points too, where the the police are um, justifying more violence against protesters because they found mysterious chemical agents at a protest, and like <laughs> yeah, you, in the picture it's just like a police holding these two bottles that say apple cider vinegar on them. Like it's like you know the most <laughs> ridiculous thing, but they you know they'll do anything to uh, justify more brutal violence against people that they are not protecting that they are actively fighting against. All that to say, uh, like, uh, there is more violence on the side of the police than there are inside of, like, protesters and people who are concerned with these situations. Um, I'll just echo these words again because they're always kind of in my head when it comes to violence, uh, especially, like, uh, in, pro- like, protests and um, revolts and uprisings. That, like, uprisings, revolts, riots, they're all too patient. Uh, they deal – their responses that are uh, – to a larger system of inequality and injustice. And if uh, they're too kind, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> they're like uh, the, the folks who suffer uh, unjustly in the capitalist political economy and under white supremacy uh, respond too kindly. I think that it could be a far more uh, expedient uh, show of force against the system. So um, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it, it's crazy to think, you know, like we live in a society where uh, the president is literally just tweeting about football players who are taking a knee at a stadium to protest that police shoot black people. Like, it is a violent society where even something as very small as, as refusing to stand or whatever um, for the for the national anthem, like even something like that would be met with like people losing their minds. I think it's it's crazy to think that someone wouldn't revolt in a situation like that. Yeah. And I don't know, it, like that's far more absurd to me than thinking that this is a situation where somebody should uh, have the right to, you know, stand up and uh, speak through their actions in those kinds of ways. It's like that you're not listening when people take a knee. So why? Why not? <laughs> All right, Matt, so uh, those are all very good thoughts. Um, we also had a voicemail, though, that we should get to. So thanks, Grant, for your comment. That was really good. Sparked some really cool conversations, I think. Hopefully it's helpful. Uh, go back and listen to the Derek Ford episode and the uh, Communist Party of the Philippines episode. But um, moving on to this voicemail, we, we got someone to call in, and that's great because it's probably very nice for all of you to listen to our voices. I know that's why you tune in, but uh, you know we like to have some other ones jumping on board here, so... Uh, why don't we roll that clip? Hey, Matt and Dean. My name is Johnny. I'm an Episcopal priest, um, and I was calling in response to the last episode that y'all recorded and put out on iTunes. Um, I just wanted to say that I've enjoyed the show and enjoyed listening to it. It was recommended to me after the first episode by none other than John Thornton Jr., and um, he and I were buddies in seminary, and he recommended the show to me and uh i don't know where all the hate's coming from for that first episode i i you know yeah you couldn't hear it very well but but the content was was fresh so i appreciate you guys doing what you're doing um you asked about pastoral perspectives in the wake of charlottesville and um 
I can say that uh, it was a difficult thing to do, especially last minute. I am a white male pastor of a church that is um, about 50-50 in uh, black and white demographics. So um, it's difficult to get up in a parish like that and speak uh, about white supremacy as a white man in a leadership position <laughs> when there are um, uh, a higher m- number of minorities in my congregation than would be in any typical um, Episcopal congregate- congregation anyway. Um, and so uh, so that, that complicates it a little bit. Um, but I also wanted to say that one of the things that I found to be, I think, the most difficult is especially in the Episcopal Church where there are a lot of liberals and particularly white liberals, um, you're going to have people who kind of nod their heads and are like happy to hear their pastors say white supremacy is bad and it just seems to be a very silly thing to have to say from the pulpit because I think everyone would say out loud white supremacy is bad, the Klan is bad, Nazism is bad. Um, the thing that I find it most difficult to communicate is and to sort of do so in a pastoral way (laughs) is to make folks in the pews, make folks in the congregation um, aware of the ways in which we are implicitly, um, I should say implicitly complicit in uh, in this violent system, in the white supremacist system, whether as its victim or as its perpetrator. Um, and I don't necessarily like to split the world up in those two different categories, but but ultimately um, getting folks to realize, no, it's not enough to say, yeah, I don't like white supremacy, but getting folks to recognize that, like, whether they like it or not as an individual has very little to do with how much they're involved in it. Uh, so it's cool to hear from a pastor. That's fun. Uh, that's what we asked for, and that's what we got. Um I think these are these are pretty good kind of like uh, just comments from the ground of someone who's like actually dealing with uh, white supremacy in a pretty public way in a church. Uh, that seems very difficult to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. It's hard for me to even understand how you would deal with that problem as a person who is part of the group that is the oppressors in a country where that church is located, uh, you know, willingly or not. Yeah. Um, but like fundamentally it sounds like uh what what john is up to is like a good approach um trying to get people to realize their like complacency within white supremacy seems like the the way to go i don't know getting people to even realize that they're like they themselves uh might not think they're part of the problem but they are part of the problem is i don't know probably the hardest thing to do in the entire world yeah that's true and i i guess when i think about it i've never heard from the pulpit someone tell me that i'm complicit in white supremacy and that's pretty troubling. I've been to a lot of sermons in my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard a few very good sermons before. <laughs> um, there are two in particular that always stand out to me that are very good on this topic. Um, so a few episodes ago, like uh, many episodes ago, when oh, Dean, you were gone. You weren't even on the show. Um, you were doing <laughs> something else. Uh, Zach Demeli was on the show talking about Leonardo Boff with me. Uh, so Zach and uh, his partner, Amanda are two uh, extremely smart people, theologically speaking. And uh, I've had the privilege to hear both of them uh, preach before, and they are the most convicting servants I think I've ever heard um, <laughs> in terms of uh, gender dynamics and race and uh, 
patriarchy and white supremacy. I don't know, man. Uh, people who can speak from the pulpit about white supremacy and uh, those things, I think, are very good. Uh, I don't know. Use that. Use that time standing up there to talk about uh, systemic problems is good. Yeah, I think so. Actually, uh, this thought just occurred to me, but I was thinking about some of the research that Heath Carter did for his book Union Made that we talked about last week. And, you know, they had Labor Sunday, where people from unions would basically take over the pulpit for a Sunday and just talk about worker struggles, etc. And I wonder what it would be like to have an analogous situation with something like dealing with problems like white supremacy or whatever. Um, I don't know, maybe white pastors should just give up their pulpit sometimes to, you know, people who are actually experiencing these things to see what they think, what they feel like needs to be said in a community. Um I feel like decolonizing the various structures of Christianity is probably extremely hard. Uh, I have the benefit of not being a pastor, so <laughs> I don't I don't have to worry about those problems in the same way. Um, but I just I'm sure there are all kinds of really creative ways of getting at it. Um, at the very least, though, just saying it and naming it is probably um, it is it is way better than than not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, my denomination, the Free Methodist Church, uh, shout out to all those good Free Methodists out there, all seven, <laughs> all seven of them. Uh, this past week at our church, it was Freedom Sunday, which is interesting. So, uh, I've said a bunch of times on the show that the Free Methodist Church has like abolitionist roots and, uh, Freedom Sunday is a time when we kind of remember that and celebrate that. Um, so we had someone at our church speaking from uh, this organization that is uh, working against like human trafficking and like sex trafficking in the United States. Well, that's kind of cool. I mean, you know, it, that is cool. It's uh, it wasn't talking about like wage slavery or anything, but you know, um, <laughs> it was still like very good, like a a, a time when um, like all of that sermon time that's usually about Jesus or whatever is kind of rerouted to being about Jesus, but in like a different kind of way. Yeah, for sure. No, it's great. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Protestant churches do that sometimes where they have, like, good specific Sundays. Right. <laughs> but also, like, yeah, uh, Fourth, Fourth of July Sunday is no good. That's not, <laughs> that's not the kind I want. Do you guys have that? Yeah, dude. It's Well, not my church, e- but, like, uh, other oh, good. Protestant churches for sure. Yeah, I've been to Fourth of July Sundays in my life for sure, and they are not good. I would love to never go to one ever again. Yeah, I think I probably won't. Yeah. That sounds good. Especially because I, I live in Canada, so... Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, now, though, I gotta find one. Find an, an American expat church that they're just all about Fourth of July Sunday. Oh, my gosh, that would be... That's like a sitcom right there. Like a... Yeah, a, that's a, it's an ethnography. Yeah, like a patriotic, uh, a patriotic like, uh, Christian church that's, like, patriotic about America, but in Canada. <laughs> Uh, speaking of that, I was just thinking about, this is like completely off the rails, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, there needs to be more like leftist sitcoms, like sitcoms about the DSA. Why not? It seems so easy. Yeah, I know. It does. It really does like, seem easy. Like mo- every time I see Modern Family on TV, I just lose my mind because I cannot handle that show. It is just so bad. It's like the worst liberalism on TV, uh, like the vaguest platitudes about inclusion and uh, I'm just like, man, people love that show. They think it is so funny. So, like, why not make a very, very funny show about, uh, you know, actually good things in this world? Like a uh, Parks and Rec, but it's like at the National DSA headquarters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. The Leslie Nope, the le- leftist Leslie Nope is the person I want to get to know. <laughs> I could be into that. That would be funny. 
No Ron Swanson's though. Holy crap. Why is Ron Swanson even a thing? Oh, but it would be like, but Ron, the Ron Swanson character would be like a tanky and he'd just be like. <laughs> Fair. Yes. Okay. Someone's got to write it. You can have this idea for free. I just want to watch it on TV. No TMs. No TMs on this one. No TMs. Not a one. <laughs> we already have Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a, whole, a, a funny show about cops. Like, why can't we have funny shows about uh, not, not cops? Yeah, I know. I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a TV show, but it is the worst type of propaganda. Someone's got to get Seth Rogen and James Franco on the phone and tell them to uh, do a, a remake of a DPRK movie where they are on the right side this time. <laughs> where they're not promoting imperialism. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> right. Please don't, though. I actually don't want to see them in anything anymore. <laughs> Please nobody tell them about anything that we're doing. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, speaking of sitcoms and uh, <laughs> and like the representation of leftist Christians, I don't know. Um, here's the thing we could talk about for a minute. Uh, Joe Carter is back on his bullshit. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he has been off of it. <laughs> That's true. So J- Joe Carter showed up on the uh, Radio Free Acton podcast, which is the <laughs> podcast of the Acton Center. Uh, oh, sorry, Acton Institute. They're an institute, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No center involved. Uh, yeah. Nothing orbiting that place except just garbage in Grand Rapids. <laughs> well, they have a podcast. Um, I would say check it out, but very much don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, please, like, uh, it would be kind of revolutionary for you to listen to this one and then go waste your time listening to that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, most of the episodes are very boring, obviously. Um, but there's one where they had Joe Carter on to talk about Antifa, and that seemed of specific interest to me. <laughs> um, so in the episode of Radio Reactin, uh with Joe Carter talking about of Antifa, um, you can uh, hear some really good uh, elaborations of uh, horseshoe theory and uh, <laughs> some very hot takes on how both anti-fat and white supremacists are bad. So uh, Joe's riding that very good middle line that everyone loves so very, very much. <laughs> um, though Joe Joe Carter, uh, my boy Joe Carter, said something very interesting that I thought was worth talking about. Um, well, he said something, and it's basically innocuous and doesn't mean anything unless you think about it, and we're going to think about it right now. So suddenly not innocuous. It's suddenly not if if you're if you're smart as as we are, it's not innocuous. Um <laughs> So Joe Carter said this thing um about Christian identity and leftist identity, and it's all of a sudden I was like, uh, oh, this is something we should do. Um so Joe says Joe says this, my friend Joe. Uh just kidding, we're not friends. Friend friend of the show, Joe. Friend of the show, Joe. Uh yeah. So this is a clip of uh Joe on the Acton podcast. He's um He's being interviewed, I guess, on his basic thoughts about the events in Charlottesville, his basic thoughts about Antifa and um, white supremacy. And ultimately, he gets talking about uh, identity and how the ultimate identity for Christians is found in Christ and in nothing else. Well, I think as Christians, our, uh, the one thing we can do is we can recognize that and we can show others that our identity is found in Christ. It's not found in um, it's not found in our, our racial makeup. It's not found in our economic class. It's found in Christ alone. So I think that's as Christians, we can kind of feel comfort in knowing that that is where our identity lies, and we don't need all these other ways to associate. Uh, so, Dean, this is very bad. This is not a good opinion to have, I don't think. <laughs> I got to agree. I mean, 
It's weird because on the one hand, it seems like a thing that Christians would kind of view as a nonpartisan idea. Like, oh, our identity is found in Christ, right? That's a thing that Christians say at church and um, other places, I guess. Uh, but I think the the like the dangerous part of how he articulates it here is that our identity is found in Christ and therefore no other identities matter. Um, I think we kind of got at this a little bit in the conversation with Amaria a long time back that um, once you kind of make the leap into Christianity, you can erase all the other identifying markers that might actually have material consequences, um, but you will need to erase them in name and not in, you know, real, uh, real life. Um, yeah, I don't know. What did you think, Matt, when you were listening to friend of the show, Joe Carter, explain his ideas about Christian identity? Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Uh, erasure is a really big deal. And I think to just ignore the other, the other like identities that someone is given, um, and someone takes up is kind of rough and intensely ideological, like in the sense yeah, that, right. uh, I don't know, just uh, just ignore the other stuff. It's not important, you know, um, <laughs> but said believe this thing, but don't act on it at all. Like if our identity is found in Christ, it seems like we can all we can really do is like think about how that affects our other identities and our other spaces. Yeah. And it's it's not like Joe Carter doesn't do that. It's just that he thinks that an identity in Christ also means an identity in free market capitalism. Yeah, that's right. Well, so uh, right after this quote that we played, so, you know, he says it's not not our racial makeup or our economic class is important. It's like it's our Christian faith. And then he says, like, right after. Seriously, if you don't believe me, go, go listen to it. We need more education on economics to really explain to people. For example, there's a lot of people that think the uh, free markets cause the Great Depression, that they cause the housing crisis and the banking crisis. And by kind of showing them it's not really that, we don't need more government to, to take all this, it kind of lessens the need to latch on to an identity to lobby for the government to kind of rescue you from uh, these economic uh, trends that we're seeing. And like, and that's why we should tell people about the virtues of small government. It's like, oh, <laughs> so you actually do have other identities. You're just not willing to uh, be upfront about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like he rolls all the identities that he finds important into Christ, which is exactly the worst possible thing and uh, something that comes all too naturally, I think, to Christians. Well, it's just like a weird thing to do when you, when you, um, you redefine what Christianity means so thoroughly that it just means whatever you believe. And that is very strange. I mean, yeah. Obviously, you like you're you're given you're given identity like when you're born. Like that's just the way that the world works. Unfortunately, you're born into like um, a specific socioeconomic class, or you're born into like a specific like racial understanding, and like that just is what happens. And like I guess that could suck. But like if you just ignore those things and you erase those things and you say, well, I'm only a Christian, then you're doing yourself a disservice because uh, <laughs> you have a radically different life experience. Uh, than Joe Carter does. And what Joe Carter means by being a Christian is not exactly what your life problem looks like. I mean, we, we've we said just earlier in this episode that, like uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a Marxist, um, which I came to understand within the context of a Christian community. So, like, that's not a tension. I think, Matt, you said, uh, I'm a Marxist because I'm a Christian. So, you know, it's not like these identities don't play with each other. Um, but y- you have to kind of find some way to talk about them separately together see how they link up and don't link up and articulate those problems i think the most dangerous thing is for joe carter to be like well i'm a christian 
uh, Christ alone. And he goes on to say, we don't need all these other ways to associate. It's like, well, but we have them all. So like, what are you, what are you talking about? We, we associate in all these ways and there are specific ways that you want to associate. And you assume that that's based on your Christian identity or not. I don't really know. It's, it's sort of left unsaid, but I guess that's the most troubling thing for me is like, yeah, I get it. Like people want to understand their Christianity as separable from a particular political program. And like, I, like, I understand that. Um, but the irony is that Joe Carter actually doesn't uh, do that very thing here. Yeah, I think just a claim that you're like just a Christian first or something or that like even your Christianity um, is like ideologically supreme in your life is disingenuous and lazy thinking that just ignores like another big part of your life. Like, yeah, it's not very reflective. No, it's not. And um, it's it's lazy material analysis. It's just lazy thinking in general. It's just overwhelmingly ideological that you can't even like consider that you actually hold a lot of Christian teachings, probably in tension with a lot of other aspects of your life. Um, not because like maybe you're not faithful, just because like, I don't know, it's hard to be a Christian and a capitalist at the same time. So you have to hold some things at an arm's length. Like Joe Carter's not out there like with a vineyard and like inviting workers to, you know, onto the field late in the day and then paying <laughs> them the same as the folks that were there before. Like he's not doing that. <laughs> he's not taking that part very seriously. He hasn't sold all of his things. Right. But he still thinks he's a Christian. Um, he hasn't sold all of his possessions. So, I mean, like just to, to think that like Christianity is supreme in your life is like, I don't know, maybe uh, existentially edifying and spiritually helpful, but uh, you hold these things in tension. And I don't know, the inability to articulate that tension is very silly. And, and just yeah, disingenuous, I, dishonest. For sure. It is dishonest and disingenuous. And I think it, it shows that for a lot of people, Christianity is actually a vacuous identity. Um, like, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just the thing that you trot out when you need to uh, complain about someone else or um, criticize someone for actually saying something meaningful that doesn't start out with, like, a Bible verse. Um <laughs> I think like that's the worst of it. Or just to go back to the the football politics around these days, um, there are all these things on my Facebook of uh, on my my old personal Facebook that I still uh, begrudgingly check every once in a while, <laughs> um, where people are posting all these pictures of Tim Tebow taking a knee, and they're like, "This is what it this is what it really looks like to take a knee," and because he's a Christian, you know, he's standing up in this persecuted society, etc. And that's the craziest thing because Tim Tebow's Christianity is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter to anybody. It doesn't really even matter to Tim Tebow in an ultimate sense. Not enough to make real demands on his life apart from, I guess, uh, getting the the overwhelming praise of like millions of evangelicals. Um, that's like the only consequence that he's really had from that. Uh, so I feel like the difference being Colin Kaepernick is also a Christian. And so are many of the other people in solidarity with him. And nobody's talking about that. Uh, like American Christianity as an identity can only handle a deeply personal and largely pointless faith. It can't really handle when that faith makes, you know, material demands or wants to be publicly in solidarity with other people by virtue of being a Christian person or something. Um, I think that's what you see here. You know, it's just sort of moving, moving the, the goalposts so that Christianity is the way that you uh, bludgeon other people. That's right. And it also helps uh, Tim Tebow immensely that he is white. <laughs> <laughs> yes 100 <laughs> percent uh if we're gonna if we're gonna be like if we're gonna talk about identity here that plays a huge role in his uh <laughs> i guess in his his non his non-protest uh taking a knee 
Um, I mean, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's such a white, white lives matter. Yeah, kind yeah. of is really what's happening there, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so Tim Tebow, I don't know if he's taking a knee these days, but he sure should. If there's any time, if there's any time to do it, it's like right now. That would be very yeah. If you're not funny. if you're not taking a knee, Tim Tebow, you are 100 percent a heretic, and I don't even use that word. Uh, yeah, a complete coward, I think too. Um, yeah, like t- taking a knee when it doesn't matter, and versus yeah, just dumb. It's just like so annoying. Well, maybe <laughs> um, I think like one helpful idea that uh is worth thinking about um in terms of theory and like talking about like uh, identity and how we think through these things and how we hold them in tension is intersectionality. Well, okay. So intersectionality is like this, uh, I don't know, very good theory sort of term. You might have learned it in college <laughs> or something. You, you should. Uh, anyways, uh, for, we get it. All. If not, you can teach your professors. That's right. Uh, tell all your, te- all your professors about intersectionality after this. Uh, it's from uh, a really <laughs> wonderful scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw and um intersectionality is a way of thinking about identities where we hold them um i mean not necessarily intention uh but it's it's a way of understanding that helps us understand oppression uh that isn't just about like unitary or like mutually exclusive entities so like we look at um all the different identities someone might have and see how they are uh the here's a quote reciprocally constructing phenomena so the way that like being both um like of a lower economic status and being a person of color and also being um, a woman might all pile on to create one uh, pile on to create a, a more complex and um, intense, like oppressive scenario than if you were just poor or, or something like that. So the idea is that we uh, start understanding all of the identities that one holds and figuring out exactly what those identities mean for that person in their lived experience. So, uh being a leftist isn't obviously the same as being like i don't know like a, like a person of like a lower economic class or something but still it's a helpful way of thinking about just like that people hold you know people don't hold just like one supreme uh, like identity but people hold like a gazillion identities um and not even willfully sometimes like they're pushed onto us by birth they're pushed onto us by economics they're pushed onto us by all kinds of different things uh, so figuring out the way these things um, like multiply oppression and multiply multiply struggle in our lives, I think, is worth thinking through. And it also identity politics helps to understand the ways in which people mobilize their identity the way that Joe Carter is here, um, because identities are socially constructed. Some people sort of think that you're you're born into this or that identity because that's the natural order or whatever. But what identity uh, theorists have really helped people see is that the ways in which people get called certain things and then certain associations and material effects uh, get piled onto that, uh, that's very contingent and the result of particular historical processes and genealogies that you can read and find out about and uh, learn about. And I think the one thing Joe Carter doesn't realize here is that his Christianity is also a socially constructed identity. It's a particular kind of Christianity in the same way that like whiteness is a particular kind of identity. It just happens to be a a very oppressive one that some people identify with, uh, you know, like white supremacists. Um, So I think that's a really helpful thing, too. It helps the side. It helps us understand both sides of the coin, like how people are oppressed in a variety of intersecting ways. And then also how uh, people ignore that by kind of retreating into their own identities that they take for granted, but are, in fact, uh, totally fabricated. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
Joe Carter uses Christianity very strategically like that. So he doesn't have to deal with issues of race and economics. He can just like say, nope, Christianity is Christianity and I'm one. And so are you maybe. So we have this in common. And uh, yeah, that's fundamentally unhelpful. Yeah, it's like you could just as easily say if your identity is found in Christ, then your identity should be found with a person who was part of the working class or a person who was part of uh, uh, largely refugee history in occupied military territory, right? Like there are so many other ways that you could understand your identity being found in Christ. And it's important to ask the question of what does Joe Carter actually mean when he's saying that as opposed to what, you know, how you could identify yourself otherwise. Yeah, that's right. Um, hey, here's a fun connection. Um, maybe it's fun. Joe Carter and Jacques Ellul hold the same position on one topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so calling back to episode number one of the Magnificast where you couldn't hear it, but we were, um, specifically dunking on, uh, what's that dude's name on Twitter? Space Ewok. <laughs> we would never dump on Space Ewok. It is the tummy Ewok, by the oh. way, who does deserve a shout out on this on this podcast. <laughs> uh, yup. Okay, so in that very first episode, you can cut all of that out. Uh, okay, so uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, right, referencing back to that first episode, Jacques Ellul, uh holds a particularly bad opinion on identity and especially a very bad opinion on liberation theologies. Uh, <laughs> and I think anyways, there's a very good... Um, line to draw here between Jacques Ellul's very bad anarchism and uh, Joe Carter's very bad Christianity. Um, so I don't want you to go back and listen to the first episode of the Magnificast because that would be bad. It's not great. Anyways, waste of time. Yeah, waste of time. Anyways, this is from uh, page five of Anarchy and Christianity. I'll just read it here anew in surround sound. Surround sound. Um, Dolby 5.0. <laughs> okay, this is what Jacques Ellul says. Now that Christianity is no longer dominant in society, it is a stupid mania on the part of Christians to cling to this or that ideology and to abandon that which embarrasses them in Christianity. Thus, many Christians turn to Stalinist communism after 1945. They emphasize whatever Christianity has to say about the poor, about social justice, about the attempt to change society, and neglected what they found uncomfortable, the proclamation of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Uh, He goes on to say as well, um, just some things that are done about liberation theology. Um, anyways, it's like a really similar sentiment between these two thinkers and uh, basically uh, Alul being like the ultimate Protestant um, only cares about that identity in Christ and like a very specific and very fundamentalist like connection to it um, and thinks that like clinging right. to any other ideology is bad. Um, but like, says Joe Carter, I guess that's the point. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting because Elul says also in that uh, same area that his big problem with liberation theologians is that they locate Jesus in all poor people and not in the specific revelation of Jesus Christ as one person or whatever. And that's kind of an interesting way to think about it because what liberation theology does is it, it finds Jesus's identity, like to be in Christ is actually to be in solidarity with the people who represent Christ. Like when Jesus says... I mean, Jesus literally identifies himself with them when he says things like, I was poor and, you know, you didn't give me whatever. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. Uh, Like, Jesus identifies himself with those people. Um, So it's just sort of ironic that Elul would locate Christ's identity outside of that. And these liberation theologians, by virtue of trying to figure out where Christ is and 
trying to figure out how to be attentive to that, uh, they locate Christ where he said he was, which is in the poor. And Joe Carter, I think, has a different sort of identity politics going on than Elul, but they both exhibit that kind of weird, like, Christian concern trolling that you have to make sure that Jesus is kept, you know, pure and uh, away from all the dirty things in the world, which to me just feels very uh, foreign to what Jesus is on about. Yeah, I think so. Do you think that there's like a, this is, this is a conversation we've had in past episodes, but let's have it again right now, um, especially because there's no one here to uh, oppose us at this point. <laughs> um, <That's right. laughs> but there seems like there's a similar move on the left as well. So this doesn't just seem like it's a weird Jacques thing or a weird um, Joe Carter thing, but it seems like sometimes leftists do this when they only focus on uh, just class, like class alone, and like that being the determining yeah. factor for oppression. Uh, I don't know. That seems kind of silly too, right? Yeah, I think so. That's Amaria drew those connections out a little bit suggestively. Um, in her paper, she talks about like Zizek and Baju. The reason that they are, if you don't know who those people are, by the way, you're not missing that much. They're, but they they're philosophers. Are, yeah, just don't worry about. Yeah, them. they're they're Marxist philosophers to like Paul Saint Paul. Um, so Amaria draws this connection where she says the reason they like Paul so much is that they both share uh, this kind of reductionism that excludes understanding identities in favor of reducing them all to this kind of common denominator where you could then, uh, I don't know, build the left on that one single unifying principle. And Amaria, I think, is really right to point out that that uh, pathology that is present in both Christianity and the left, uh, because they share that kind of... Um, that kind of sympathy, that pathology really works to make sure that people who are doubly excluded, triply excluded, etc., uh, they don't really kind of get to have the way the specific ways in which they're oppressed ever get addressed or brought out in the open to be discussed. It's like people on the left can't really handle critiques from the left sometimes, and that's not a good thing. Uh, yeah, and just, I don't know, thinking through it, like, as class being the one determining factor, again, that's just so... It just seems like kind of lazy thinking. Um, it's important because like these intersection, the intersectionality of like possible points of oppression, um, they don't like, it shouldn't be a problem for the left. It's not saying that like, I don't know, capitalism isn't important. It just says that like capitalism like works with other social factors to like uh, make oppression worse and more intense. So I don't know. I don't always really get that, uh, that position of just being like a class only kind of person. Yeah, the anxiety is unclear to me, too, because I guess I feel like we don't really lose anything by saying that class is a problem, and so is white supremacy, and so is patriarchy, and they are problems that are related, that all build off of one another, but are not necessarily problems that are all symptomatic of capitalism alone, or whatever. Um, like, I, I just, I, I've never felt like I missed a part of uh, liberating potential by accepting that other people are oppressed in multiple ways. Yeah, right. It seems like, I, I, I suppose, like, one possible problem might be it's harder to organize people if everyone has these different, like, identities, but it doesn't seem like that's actually the case either. I don't know. There's, like, I don't know. Does the, Dean, does the Communist Party of Canada have a hard stance on this? <laughs> <laughs> well, in their program, they're pretty clear about the fact that, I mean, they don't, they don't come out and say, I guess, anything like, uh, they don't use intersectionality as a language, and they don't use class uh, reductionism as a language either um, but they do specifically name things like sexism and racism and a variety of other oppressive uh, structures as their own things and they talk about that within the context of capitalism but at least as I've read it it's never come across as a 
these are totally symptomatic of capitalism. It's always been capitalism has found ways to kind of use these things um, to, you know, make its make its way in the world. Uh, and I think that's pretty right. Um, you know, I don't really know what the party's official stance is on that, but uh, it, the language they use seems pretty amenable to understanding multiple intersecting lines of oppression. Yeah, uh, it just seems hard for me to only think through one of those. Um well, like only think like through class is like the most important thing. I mean, even in the People's Congress of Resistance uh, manifesto, they do think as well along several lines of oppression and not just uh, capitalism. I mean, they like the sixth, uh, the sixth demand is ending patriarchy and oppression based on sex, gender and sexual orientation. So it seems like they have a pretty good uh, position on that as well. <laughs> like, I don't know. They, Yeah, I, I don't know. Um just seems like a weird thing that i feel like i see people arguing about on twitter a lot or whatever (laughs) yeah i guess the worry some people have is that identity politics do get taken up by liberals in ways that are strategically unhelpful i guess the one lesson of hillary clinton for example is that feminism isn't very radical just by virtue of calling itself feminism right Mm. um yeah and that's i don't know i get it but like we're not gonna ditch feminism because hillary clinton tried to run for president like that's a dumb thing just like there are tons and tons of liberal politicians i mean the democrats every single time they run for office they try to identify with the working class and with unions and does that mean that you know uh working class consciousness is co-opted by capital indefinitely well like i hope not (laughs) if it does then like you shouldn't be a class only person at all uh I guess it's just there. there's no line of um, critical discourse that can't be and won't be kind of taken up by bourgeois interests for the sake of bourgeois interests. That's kind of what they do. Like, that's what they're good at doing. Yeah, is, subsuming uh, critique. Defanging this. Yeah, things. that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, one of my classes today read through uh, Sylvia Federici's Wages for Housework, or Wages Against Housework, sorry. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know, the way she explains it, it doesn't seem like you can be actually a very good leftist and not think through the ways that uh, patriarchy like mystifies relationships between genders and also helps reinforce the mystification of labor. It just doesn't seem like it's possible. Right. So, like, I don't know. Get on, yeah. get on board, everybody. I'll board, I'll board the, the identity politics train. Uh, thinking historically, too, about groups like the Black Panthers or the Young Lords or whatever, um, you know, those are groups that intentionally understood, I think, the ways in which all these uh, lines of oppression intersect. And we're still learning in the process of kind of building liberation movements. So like there's tons of literature on the Black Panthers and how they were really quite successful at reaching out to white workers, reaching out to Puerto Rican workers, building coalitions that were multiracial. Uh, but they struggled with understanding gender identities in their own party and um, sometimes they met that really progressively and in liberating ways. Other times there are women who've been in the in the party who say that, you know, they struggled as women and had to kind of fight for a voice there. And I think that's the thing about the left is one of the reasons the Panthers were successful is that they were open to those kinds of critiques and always learning from it. I mean, Huey P. Newton famously um, was open to gay liberation before other leftist organizations were open to that. And I think that's just by virtue of having that kind of... Uh, way way of organizing that understands that in order to organize people you have to actually understand where they're coming from on their terms in a lot of the, in a lot of cases right like um materialist analysis like also isn't just like uh philosophizing uh <laughs> i guess about like working conditions but it's also like listening to people and 
Yeah, that's the hardest part, yeah. for sure. Um, so Joe Carter, sorry, in Christ alone, uh, you better go find the poor. <laughs> that's where he is. <laughs> All right. Um, so if you want to support us financially, especially uh, because we put all of these episodes together um, while we do other things in our lives, we would really appreciate it. Uh, that LaCroix doesn't buy itself. Uh, you can do you can, you can support us at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, we also have a newsletter called the Magnifesto where you can subscribe to um, you can subscribe to like a weekly newsletter where we tell you about, I don't know, articles, book, book stuff, book quotes, other stuff related to Christianity and the left. Um, and we even do a little bit of Christianity and Socialism 101 at the end of each issue. So if that's a thing you're interested in, something to check out, uh, you can get that at tinyletter.com slash the Magnificast. Um, so you can think of it like as a just like your your weekly Christian devotional. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have, how you gonna do?